Hey folks, Dan here. Today on the MicroArch Club podcast, I am joined by Thomas Summers. Thomas is currently the founder and CEO of Positron AI, which recently emerged from Stealth with its first product, Atlas, which is a transformer inference appliance. We talk about what makes Atlas different than traditional inference hardware and how Positron is able to deliver significantly higher performance per dollar compared to current GPU solutions. However, we start out at the beginning of Thomas's fascinating journey, which began with dropping out of high school to start a chip company at age 17. We cover his experience in the Teal Fellowship program, why there's a need for a new instruction set architecture, and how he and a team of three other engineers were able to tape out and deliver a new chip in a highly compressed time frame. Thomas is an ardent student of computing history, which made this discussion a ton of fun as we connect the dots from research papers in the 70s and 80s to the cutting edge processors of today. Before we jump in, I want to thank Michael, who is the co-founder and CTO at Lambda, for initially connecting Thomas and I a few months ago. With that, let's get into the conversation. All right. Hey, Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, for, for folks who, who don't have context, which I guess uh, is everyone, uh, Thomas and I spoke a, a few months back. Um, Michael over at Lambda was uh, nice enough to connect me with Thomas. Um, I know you all have worked together in the past. Um, and I was just kind of um, just trying to talk to folks who had experience that I was interested in as I was kind of um, learning more about processor design and, and trying to learn more about the industry. And Thomas, you were nice enough to uh, spend some time chatting with me. Um, and then you have a, a new venture that you're working on, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this show. Um, so now is kind of a, a great time as you all have come out of stealth uh, to, uh, to circle back around and have you on the show. Yeah, well, um, thanks again for inviting me. And uh, yeah, always uh, excited uh, to be able to talk about computer architecture and uh, computer history. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, as a little behind the scenes here, I guess, um, I haven't released any episodes yet. So I've just been kind of doing recordings of this show. And most of the folks I've talked to um, uh, worked in the industry kind of in the 70s and 80s and um, are now retired and, and are very happy to talk about um, their experiences. Um, but I'm, I'm also trying to get, you know, folks who are hands on today and really get a sense for, um, you know, what uh, what has inspired the work that's happening today, as well as what, you know, modern work and processors looks like. Um, you have a very, very interesting background, though, that I think uh, I'll probably not have anyone else on the show who has uh, something similar. But you, uh, I believe, dropped out of high school, right, um, after getting the Teal Fellowship. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got interested in computer architecture and then how that whole uh, process came about? Yeah. Um, so... I think some of my earliest memories, uh, like three, four years old, uh, are were when I was in front of computers. So uh, I've been a computer user and very interested in them um, uh, since then. So this is right at the turn of this, the the millennium. So um, yeah, back uh, you know, still like early memories of dial-up tones and such. But uh, uh, you know, the fact that my parents let me on the internet in you know two thousand and one when I was five, right. <laughs> Maybe, you know, good or bad idea, uh, not sure, but uh, uh, I just had a, uh, you know, it, it was my obsession to be, be playing with computers. And um, I started to connect, like, more just using it as a 
uh, tool and like the interest in, in okay could play games can can you know actually learn things online. I was uh, uh, throughout elementary school very into uh, uh, trying to research as much as I can and just dive into Wikipedia for three plus hours at a time. But um, uh, but yeah, my dad also purchased um, uh, electronics kits from the 60s and 70s, the old, you know, 100 projects in one uh, things. And uh, so I also then got very interested in, okay, not only, you know, can do computers do all these amazing things, but I can actually take, you know, a little piece of cardboard with a whole bunch of components and uh, follow this instruction booklet, which I think I actually started using those booklets before I actually knew how to read. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, can make a you know light turn on and then you know graduate graduate to a crystal radio and and uh, so on and so forth. So um, yeah, it was really those really early formative years that got me interested in electronics. Um, and then by the time you know late elementary school, um, uh, middle school, uh, I just would take part everything in the house and thankfully had parents that. Uh, um, were okay with me taking things apart as long as I convinced them that I could put it back together. Um, right. And I had a pretty good success rate of that. But even when I couldn't put something back together, if I showed that I actually learned something about it, then they weren't too mad. Uh, uh, so. That's awesome. But, uh, Is the, yeah. we, we've talked a little bit, you know, about, um, uh, kind of like digging through abstraction layers. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of folks um, who have, um, you know, somewhat of a, a similar early interest in computing who end up being software engineers, but you kind of push down and maybe it was some of that, you know, electronic kit influence and that sort of thing. But what was it that kind of, you know, brought you from using computers to want to dig down and understand, you know, mechanically how they work? Yeah, um, I think those early experience with just really basic electronics kits, I really appreciated putting my hands on things and, and especially experimenting like, okay, are there other ways that I can get this to, to function other than what the instructions tell me? And I think it's, you know, similar, I probably unsurprisingly um, was, you know, loved Lego sets, but, uh, you know, I would go buy a Lego set, uh, put together what it said, at least maybe half of it, and then have more fun just making something entirely new. Um, and so that hands-on aspect, I think, was was just always with me. And then by the time I actually started learning, you know, computer programming, um, uh, thankfully, I, in middle school, I, I was able to get into a um, public charter school um, called the Advanced Math and Science Academy. And uh, they actually, you know, were starting, you know, teaching Python in sixth grade. And so um, I... Uh, actually got much more interested when they were teaching Python, you know, learning that. But then on the side, you know, I had Arduinos and and uh, a few, you know, basic stamps and stuff like that. And um, uh, started more on the C side, but also learning Python. But I guess even though I learned and could appreciate and build some things on, on Python and, you know, higher level software side, um, there was nothing like, uh, it was nothing like writing C code and then getting, you know, the very simple Arduino version of C and being able to get that to, to run and actually blink an LED. Um, right. So it was really just always on that on that hardware side for me. Gotcha. And and so then uh, you get into high school and I assume that's when uh, you applied to the Teal Fellowship. How did you learn about that and what was yeah. kind of the process for getting into that program? 
Yeah, so um, when I was in eighth grade, so still middle school, um, the director of the computer science program at my high school um, uh, recommended uh, that I uh, went to this event at um, the Google Cambridge uh, office. And I grew up in central Massachusetts. Um, and uh, so went there was a day, you know, encouraging, you know, middle and high school students that they should, you know, study computers. Um, and I was already pretty hard set on, on that. But uh, there was a, a woman there who was, um, I believe, a, a manager, director, something at, at iRobots, which is a local um, Boston area company. And uh, uh, she had, I met her, she thought I was smart. Um, uh, and then a couple weeks later, she emailed me out of the blue uh, uh, through my, my school and um, sent a, a link to the announcement of the Teal Fellowship. This was back in, in 2011. And oh, wow. uh, she said, you know, I, she, she knew one of the organizers of the Teal uh, Fellowship. And uh, she, she said that it looked like something interesting for me. Um, you know, the kind of crazy thing about it, I was, you know, 14 uh, at the right. time. So it was... Uh, um, uh, yeah, a bit young for, uh, for it. So I, it, at that, uh, around the same time in 2010, I started actually being a research affiliate at, uh, at a research lab at MIT and, um, worked there for three years. And then finally in 2013, I, uh, uh, got accepted into the fellowship. Wow. That's, that's, uh, incredible. I mean, you, you obviously showed quite a lot of promise, but, uh, also, uh, really, really great of her to, to reach out. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times, uh, we, we look at folks, you know, maybe being in eighth grade or something like that and assume, well, maybe they can do that later. But, um, that's, that's really cool that someone was looking out for that and, uh, uh, you know, thought it's not, it's never too early. So, um, that obviously had I, a really positive impact. I think the good thing was, was the, uh, director of our, our CS program at, at a, our school was, uh, I don't think she realized that it was actually dropping out of school was the like <laughs> encouraged thing. Right. Uh, and so I'm sort of doubting that if, if she knew that, that, uh, would have made that, that connection. But, um, right. But yeah, it was, you know, pretty serendipitous. Absolutely. So, so you get into the Teal Fellowship and, um, I believe there, um, is kind of like a period of time where you're kind of figuring out what to work on, right? Was that, how long was that period of time? And then obviously you um, and uh, some other folks founded Rex Computing. Um, what was kind of like the process of getting into Teal Fellowship and then getting to that point of, of starting the company? Yeah, so um, the application for the Teal Fellowship at that point uh, closed, you know, December 31st, uh, 2012. So I applied then, but for basically the past year and a half, roughly before that, uh, the main project I was working on at MIT was uh, 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 maintaining and, and doing, you know, tests on um, the uh, cluster computing system at the, the ISN, the lab I was at. And um, uh, the particular focus, I was evaluating a whole bunch of new ARM-based processors for uh, uh, use for cluster and high-performance computing. and. Uh, uh, you know, we, we were the first to benchmark the uh, Calceta, if anyone remembers them, uh, the first like ARM server processor back in uh, 2011, 2012 timeframe. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, that was 
really my formative formative years learning on uh, distributed computing and and aspects really at a much higher level than you know the actual processor architecture, but was very interested in the idea that um, you know processors that were designed for embedded systems, uh, you know, right. ARM at the time was really just embedded and in industrial and, and mobile, uh, and really smartphones were really only just starting to to really uh, kick off, and ARM was getting some real steam um, with that. But um, the uh, the the key thing there when applying for the Teal Fellowship was this idea that I wanted to bring that sort of research work and my belief that okay these low power processors um, are going to be able to actually scale out and utilize them for general you know server uh, industrial you know web server processing um, and so and that was. I would say a pretty risky novel idea outside of, you know, Cal Calceda at the time was basically the only company pursuing it. Um, and so uh, that, that was my Teal Fellowship application was utilizing and, and continuing that work, but actually starting a company around it. So there was a whole multi-round interview process for the fellowship and then uh, got selected in May of 2013 and moved out to the Bay Area in, in June. So. Basically, that startup, uh, like really just getting my lay of the land in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, I was 17, had just, you know, moved right. out, uh, never having been away from home for more than, you know, two weeks. Um, and so getting to uh, meet the other folks in the, in the Teal Fellowship, there's 20 selected per year, all, all under 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, Spent basically that summer getting away from land and actually incorporated Rex in uh, August of 2013. Okay. So. Yeah, so so pretty quick from the beginning. And and when you incorporated, you already had kind of the the idea for what you wanted to do as well. Yeah. The, well, the idea originally was uh, generically, you know, uh, go after low power, high performance computing. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, and and you know the target market for that was you know the big data. Uh, you know, being the big buzzword at the time, uh, right. uh, you know, data centers for, uh, and, you know, the earliest folks that I was, you know, talking with uh, were at, at Facebook. So I got involved in the Open Compute Project uh, pretty early on, um, uh, later uh, became a, a coordinator for the uh, uh, high performance computing uh, group within OCP. Um, but uh, yeah, effectively the, the, uh, the, the really high at level outline was there. Um, the first about six months after that, basically through the end of 2013, was really focused on uh, utilizing ARM. And was after, you know, having a lot of conversations with all of the ARM chip vendors, ARM themselves, looking at what IP uh, and core designs they had in their roadmap, et cetera, that came to the, you know, sad realization that uh, it's, not quite there yet. So our ARM V8 um, specification just came out mm -hmm. that summer. Um, all of the chips out there were still 32-bit ARM V7. Um, and so uh, ARM V8 was still going to be around the corner, but even that first generation of them, I, I didn't think were going to be uh, really competitive in the market uh, against what, you know, projecting for, for Intel and, and AMD on the x86 side. So... Um, it was really then at the beginning of 2020, uh, uh, excuse me, 2014, uh, 10 years ago, that uh, uh, said, okay, well, if ARM isn't going to be the solution, then um, uh, 
what could we actually, you know, build ourselves? It was like right. extremely naive, uh, probably, you know, a bit hubris, but I think the, the, the general thought was, okay, um, with ARMv8, they're actually embracing a lot of the CISC um, elements right. of, of x86, and they're still not actually providing a real competitive advantage. And the, the real root of the idea, like end of 2013 or early 2014 was, um, I have this Teal Fellowship, it's, you know, I'm getting $50,000 a year, which is nothing in, in you know, to live right. in the Bay Area, but I was okay living with, you know, five, six other people. So, um, Basically, what the Teal Fellowship really gave was that freedom to think a really crazy idea, like, why don't I make my own processor architecture um, and uh, uh, actually take the time to explore that um, in a way that didn't feel like the, the immediate time pressure of I, I need to support you know myself beyond the fellowship. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, additionally, at that time when you were looking at the... Um uh, ARM IP that was available. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of saying that uh, you have that freedom, so maybe this wasn't as much of a consideration, but was the cost of licensing ARM IP, did that come into um, play or was it mostly just like the capabilities weren't there at that point? It was really the capabilities. Um, thankfully, I had some really great connections uh, with, with folks at ARM and they were trying to be, you know, extremely supportive. Um, they, early on, but from you know the, the connections made at MIT. The folks um, that at at ARM that wanted to go up to you know higher performance uh, and capabilities, uh, you know were were trying to be as helpful as possible. But um, you know as we've seen in this past decade, it's ARM's only actually got competitive in the past three four years. So it right. really took you know time for for all of that to uh, to evolve. Um, and I should say that, you know, also evaluated other, other architectures and, um, uh, I think a, a large part of the, uh, drive to think about designing, you know, a new architecture from scratch was, um, seeing that there were plenty of, uh, what I thought were, were good, interesting ideas, um, you know, be it a decade before that with, you know, MIT raw and Tyler, and then, you know, later as I learned about, you know, multi-flow two decades before, et cetera, et cetera, that right. my thinking at the time, especially being in the Bay Area with um, the entrepreneurial vibe and a lot of people's thinking being around, um, you know, there were plenty of good ideas in the past that failed for, not because they were bad ideas, but, you know, didn't, weren't, it wasn't the right time, you know, being a, right. a big, big thing kind of lended um, credence and and belief on, on my part that, uh, you know, this could actually be the right time to, to do something new. Absolutely. That's one of the things. So, so you know, most of the research I, I did for our discussion today uh, is from this talk you gave at Stanford, uh, where you really go through what y'all what build at Rex, essentially. And I'll link that in the show notes and would encourage folks to watch. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciate, and we'll talk about some of these concepts here in a second, is the callbacks you, you do to talk about these um, designs that have maybe been used in the past or, or concepts that have been used in the past. And in some cases... Uh, are kind of like mocked, right? They're, they're um, regarded as not working out. Um, and you kind of go through it and, and debunk some of those. Um, that's something I find really interesting looking at even like the risk versus CISC debate, right? Because that happened in the 70s and 80s and things like that. And then 
we seem to go the way of Cisco architectures with x86 and then obviously right with what we're talking about with arm and risk five and um you know some of the stuff y'all were doing um obviously risk has has come back into into vogue here um actually tomorrow i'm uh, another kind of like behind the scenes i'm i'm recording with uh robert gardner um who designed the spark instruction set um and we're focusing on um register windows and talking about you know like why they succeeded and why they didn't so um there's a lot of times the reason things didn't succeed is not um that they just weren't good ideas right there was some other factor um and and maybe we can use that kind of to jump into um what y'all were uh, starting to build there so um i think the um uh my main takeaway was like two big contact uh two big concepts from the uh architecture that y'all designed and that was um uh vliw so uh, very long uh instruction word and um and scratch pad memory were kind of like the two things that i took away from that talk um do you want to maybe maybe start with vliw and talk about um the history of that and, and why y'all chose to go with that architecture? Yeah. Um, so I think a, a big reason I, I gravitate towards the history is, um, you know, other than my, my love of electronics as a kid, um, I, I was very bored in, in school in general, but um, the, the only class I was very actively involved in throughout my school, it was always history. And so I, I just loved learning about you know, everything from, you know, ancient Egypt and Rome to uh, World War II and, and really getting an idea of, you know, the, the causes and effects and, you know, how, how you know, everything has branched out uh, from, you know, over, you know, only a few thousand years of, you know, modern history. So um, right. that always fascinated me. And then, you know, computer history and how, like the fact that really, you know, electronic, uh, or if I expand a little bit, mechanical computers have a much, uh, um, uh, you know, shorter, you know, less than, than 150, 200 year time, time frame. And the, the evolution there has been, um, you know, remarkable. And I, I just, me learning any of the technical details of things, I just become so much easier. And I think I, I, I make, uh, deeper connections, both from a just, personal enjoyment standpoint, but also like being able to analyze things in, I think, a different way than others by actually mm -hmm. learning the, the, the real, you know, historical line of things. Like if you understand um, uh, why, you know, uh, you know, in general, smart people made certain decisions that in retrospect, people ridicule. If you actually look back and, and look at the context of how they came to that decision, um, it gives a lot more insight and usually you know, uh, suggest that no, they weren't dumb. They they actually made you know a pretty reasonable choice given their constraints and and such. Um, so like, I, but like an interesting thing, just since brought up the risk um, uh, CISC wars in, in the the uh, 80s and 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 beyond. Um, a lot of people like don't actually recognize that risk was actually a thing before CISC was in the 60s, and mm -hmm. it's kind of overlooked. But like. Uh, I would, I, a lot of people, you know, that are, are nerdy about this sort of thing would, would argue like the, the CD6, CDC uh, 6600 was the first risk machine. So that was, you know, Seymour Cray designed first, uh, you know, real supercomputer that, that uh, had, had mass market adoption. And um, fundamentally, like what is risk? I, I would be, you know, a lot of people 
probably because it's the easy thing for for more lay people to understand. Just think, oh well, you have a fewer set of instructions that you you build out and you know do pipelining and things like that. But right. fundamentally, like it's a load store architecture. The fact that you're having to actually move all of your data into register into registers and you're operating on registers. Um, is a very different paradigm from, you know, early CISC machines, you know, going, you know, system 360 onwards. And so uh, just in, if we go back to what I think of being like the first real CISC war of going between, um, you know, uh, Control Data Corp, uh, which Seymour left and then and formed Cray, uh, but, you know, the first real risk architectures there versus, you know, system 360, which, you know, power, you know, the, the, the uh, I, I would I actually haven't looked into like Power 10 recently exactly where where they have uh, compatibility break off, but you know a huge uh, constraint on the power architecture for a very long time was you know IBM's insistence on being able to have binary compatibility all the way back to like 1968. Um, um, I I think they still have it on the Z machines, which isn't Power. Or yeah, there there's other processing elements there, but um, but yeah, the the uh, you know. Evolution of, of risk to VLIW. A lot of people, and I, I would say the first true VLIW was the the ELI, which was um, uh, extremely long instruction, uh, five twelve, which was Josh Fisher, which then led to uh, MultiFlow that I mentioned earlier. But um, a lot of people like don't actually know about floating point systems, and you know they're they're uh, super supercomputers from the the mid seventies that. Uh, didn't call their thing VLIW at all, but has all of the key characteristics of, you know, the, the name is misleading and, and saying, you know, very long instruction word. Everyone just thinks, okay, that that must be what defines a VLIW. But in the same way that I would say risk is, is fundamentally that load store architecture, you're doing all of your operations on registers and you're needing to move that in and out of whatever other parts of your memory um, uh, before and after operating. Um, the core thing with VLIW is this idea that you can actually be doing concurrent operations that is very distinct and different from just parallel operations and that you can encode in such a way that your instruction stream and, and that very long instruction, um, all of the operations that are being given uh, in that single word are things that you are making a guarantee with the system um, that you you the programmer or whatever is emitting that that instruction word um, uh, is making a guarantee that these things uh, can all operate concurrently uh, without right. hazards. So, yeah, um, absolutely. And that was extremely powerful idea uh, in in you know for the mid seventies with with FPS and then uh, uh, you know for in, in the supercomputer space. Um, and then it was really, I would say, multi-flow that tried to take that to a much grander level um, and be actually saying that we're going to build a compiler that can do this for you, that that it's not the programmer, you know, a, a really brilliant person drawing things on paper, you know, in the 70s with FPS and trying to, to manually schedule this, but that this can actually be a a uh, control flow graph and you can, can algorithmically um, uh, determine uh, what things can can be done in parallel, and that, frankly, has been the the holy grail problem for you know thirty forty years now, uh, as it relates to to VLIW systems. Absolutely, and you know when you you talk about different ways to get instruction level parallelism, the uh, 
you know, what we're, what we're kind of talking about, and this is with risk and CISC as well, perhaps, uh, is do you do more work in the hardware or do you push more complexity to the hardware or do you push it into the compiler? And, you know, the way computing systems have evolved have changed that trade-off. So some of the discussions, you know, looking back at things in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, assumptions about, for instance, you mentioned a human, you know, writing a program, it's, it's very different when you're, you're comparing that to a compiler generating machine code. Um, so that's, you know, one of the things that I frequently see with some of the research from uh, back in that time and then applying it today. Um, that's just one vector where the trade-offs may have changed, you know, throughout history. The, um, the architecture, the, the processor that you referenced in that talk um, that kind of uh, gave VLIW a bad name was Itanium, uh, which I'm sure uh, a number of folks uh, are familiar with. Um, so with VLIW, we can potentially reduce the complexity um, uh, of the processor, right? Because we're, we're pushing more of that onto the compiler. Can you talk about why Itanium was not successful in doing that or, or why it's maybe mocked today? Yeah. Um, well, as I mentioned in that talk, and I'll stick to my, my stance here, I, I do not consider, um, uh, you know, this is trying to like disown a, a, not even my own child, but something that gets associated with the thing that I love. Right. Um, but uh, I, I do not consider Itanium, Itanic to, to be a VLIW architecture. Um, and my best evidence or, or thing I can point to support that um, is Intel's own marketing from the time. Uh, which they were very explicitly trying to say that it wasn't VLIW back then. Um, they they coined this epic name, so it's the explicitly parallel, you know, instruction set computer. And um, I appreciate whoever in the marketing department uh, at that time, uh, you know, w was doing that. Um, <laughs> and but even the the you know technical reasoning for doing that was their belief that they could actually take the really powerful, amazing thing about VLIW of being able to have these explicitly encoded uh, uh, parallel or concurrent operations that could be done. And I would say they had a bit of, um, and you know, uh, I, I've heard different stories from different people involved at the time, but in general, I think everyone would agree that um, there were strong battles internally in the both Itanium team itself, but you know, being heavily, heavily constrained and influenced by other parties within Intel that were really trying to heavily push the, uh, uh, you know, x86 Pentium continuation elements. And what I think the real downfall for, for Itanium in, in diverging from sort of the pure VLIW roots, which have ended up being successful in many other products that we'll, we'll talk about, but um, was them trying to still have support and, and some level of compatibility with, with x86 and mm. all the um, uh, elements and, and kitchen sink pieces that were getting moved in from other parts of Intel and being bolted onto to Itanium that kind of turned it into not being VLIW and I would say very much being epic uh, and, and turning out to be an epic fail. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, to, to explain, I guess expand a little bit on it. It's um, fundamentally comes down to what I was saying before, where VLIW is the programmer, the compiler, whoever, whatever is uh, uh, giving that instruction. It's its job to actually be saying that um, we know at this at this cycle that you're going to be having um, uh, no control or data hazards with this this data you're providing, 
And when you start to try to add a lot of you know advanced processor features like branching, um, uh, branch prediction, um, you know any sort of caching systems, um, and especially if you want to actually have some instruction compatibility with x86, which was a big and goal that Intel never actually even delivered on with with Itanium. Um, uh, you add in so much requirements of non-deterministic uh, features that that guarantee can't be made. It's it's right. impossible. Like if uh, um, the 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 delusion and the the reason I uh, think that I, the itanium failure is so uh, well known by people that aren't computer architects and but that they still associate as VLIW bad because of uh, itanium um, don't realize that it wasn't that they just weren't able to make a sufficiently smart compiler. That was a impossible task. It's, mm-hmm. I, I would say, um, probably not provable as impossible, like, you know, P is is or is not equal to, to NP. I would say it's similarly um, non-determinable, but any rational person, I think, would be saying that P is not equal to NP. And if it was, then the whole world collapsed and none, none of us, n- nothing we say right. about it matters <laughs> if it was. And so I would make a similar assertion that um, Itanium's you know, mythical magical compiler was impossible due to all of the non-VLIW cruft and, and design directions that they, they tried to, to do it to make it a... Um, appealing product from Intel's internal perspective. And um, fundamentally, I think that those those decisions were rooted in Intel didn't want to actually um, diverge from from x86. Right, right, absolutely. That's that's kind of a, um, uh, once again, kind of referencing back to like where you put the complexity, uh, you have to make sure wherever you push the complexity that you, you give sufficient information to make the decisions in that place. And it sounds like in this case, right, the, um, it, you know, compiler authors or human, you know, humans writing uh, machine code or assembly, um, you know, they didn't have sufficient information to reason about performance and, and maybe some of those hazards as well. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and then and, with- and so You're having to take a, a you know, full pack, uh, uh, pipeline, you know, flush of, you know, 40 plus cycles at that, that time, if I remember correctly, you're going to have a really bad time. So right. it's, I, I think the, the key thing to, re- to remember is like code worked on Itanium. You could run programs. They just performed horribly um, because those guarantees that, that, um, uh, correct level of abstraction and where the handoffs are in complexity um, were uh, like, I think this is the other other thing and why I, I don't think a lot of the, the engineers and people associated with Itanium like to talk about and, and don't like to correct the record on a, a broader scale um, is because so many people and it, it's becomes like within the broader um, computer science, you know, culture, like a, a known failure beyond just in computer architecture architects that um, uh, people don't like give credit to the engineers. The engineers actually want to make a good product. They actually want to do you know the right thing. They made a lot of good decisions. But when you have the wrong requirements going in and the wrong uh, 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 you know request demands of, of a system, you're you're going to end up um, you know, not making the right thing. Right, right, absolutely. Well, so in in um, 
your uh, your Neo architecture um, that y'all designed at Rex, um, y'all took a, a different approach. Um, and you talked about in that talk um, having hard real-time determinism. Um, what was kind of the strategy? Are there any um, kind of like things you could point out um, specifically in the processor architecture that allowed you to be able to do that in contrast to something like Itanium? Yeah, so probably the, the biggest element that um, stands out but also vastly simplifies everything is the fact that we um, went to a purely uh, scratch pad based uh, memory system. So in terms of what would normally be, you know, L1, L2, you know, caches and, and uh, traditional processors, rather than having the TLBs and MMU and all of these extra pieces of logic, which take up a lot of area, a lot of power, a lot of design time and complexity. Um, uh, and and add latency and 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 such. Um, uh, basically, think of you've got your L1 cache, but we just rip out all of that, and you're just directly accessing that memory, the physical addresses uh, for for those pieces. So at the individual core level, it was you know, uh, and and I think a lot of how we talked about it to most people, just think of it as being a you know simple risk core uh, to start off with. Um, in reality, it's VLIW, but VLIW got such a bad rap that you can still it still meets the definition of risk, um, and you know most people don't actually care how instructions are, are generated for it if if they're not responsible for doing anything related to it. Right. But you know had you know a 64-bit ALU uh, IEEE 754-2008 compatible 64-bit uh, uh, floating point unit. Um, and then, you know, two separate register files for, for each of those. And then the scratch pad memories, which were divided into multiple banks. And really the, the VLIW, the, the instruction board that used to control these elements, enabled you to be doing an ALU op, a floating point op, um, as well as two load and store operations simultaneously all in, in, in a single, single cycle. And, you know, at that basic core level, that sounds... You know, pretty simple. It's it's um, you know no more difficult than than and in a lot of ways a lot easier than programming you know computers pre nineteen eighty five ish with when with the pro proliferation of caches like mm -hmm. you just directly access the memory system and it happens that a single one of those cores had more you know main memory just embedded within that core than a lot of the the early computers that uh, probably a lot of people listening to this this. Uh, podcast uh, uh, grew up with in, in the you know early 80s, 90s. So, um, but yeah, we expanded. So the, the core difference is that just having that direct access to memory drastically simplifies. And the benefit from us from on the software layer is because you have that exact deterministic uh, uh, operation for, for every single instruction you're, you're doing, all, all of your memory accesses take a, a you know, predetermined um, number of cycles, number of, of nanoseconds. Um, uh, when you're actually generating, when you have your compiler and the compiler is trying to, to generate a, a, a control flow graph for your program, um, it knows exactly when data is going to be where and that, you know, there's not uh, the, these, the potential that the hardware is actually going to be doing something in secret and there's going to be a stall that needs to be inserted for God knows how many cycles. Right, oh. and when when I when you were describing that, I uh, it kind of made me think. It it feels like a similar kind of like 
pushing the complexity or, or maybe even you could say pushing the capability um, onto the compiler to, you know, not just in the um, uh, instruction and control uh, process, but also in the, the memory system now, um, which is kind of like interesting to like lean fully into to that kind of model. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, and it's not like no one was doing that between Itanium and us. Like there are plenty of VLIW architectures that had great success, primarily in the signal processing world. Um, and so, you know, uh, between, you know, 2000 and at this point, 2014, 2015, uh, for, for Rex, uh, you know, there were uh, like basically every single cell phone. If you, if you think about the number of devices there, uh, maybe by 2015, I may just, I, I think it would be believable that um, there are more VLIW processor cores out in the world than x86 processor cores, um, because it would be in every single uh, baseband for uh, uh, you know your cell phone. It would be in every you know DSP that's doing you know any ADC DAC work uh, with anything that has microphone connected to it. So you know the. Um, VLIW, what, what a lot of people don't realize is VLIW won in a very silent way in application segments where you you needed that determinism. Like any in, in, in most of those DSP applications, um, it was a requirement going into the design of, of that processor and the overall product that uh, those processors would be going into to have some like hard guarantees on timing. And the easiest thing for those designers to do was ensure that the hardware behaved exactly uh, as designed and not to have these um, elements that were originally designed to make, you know, general programmers lives easier. Like the reason that cache, that hardware managed caching took over was, you know, back in the late 80s through through 90s, uh, processor architects were getting free transistors every right. you know, two years. And so um, if you just keep getting free transistors and you almost don't know what to do with it, you're going to start adding complexity to to your your design in order to make what is thought of as the the you know your your end customers, the, the people that actually need to program and utilize these machines, make their lives easier, allow them to address, you know, a virtual memory space and and not have to, to understand all of the, the increasing complex complexity that's being introduced. And I think fundamentally the big you know our thesis for Rex was we wanted to do much grander um, programs, applications than what DSPs were restricted to, and we were targeting, you know, a higher level of performance, et cetera. And our belief, and I think, you know, we, we did prove out on this, is you can have a sufficiently advanced compiler to be able to do that sort of scheduling, as long as you make those guarantees, and if you're willing to actually spend the time with the compilations. Like, the... I, like our compiler wasn't fast. It was, it was developed for, for VL, uh, uh, off of LLVM. Um, so I, I think like the big advancements that only really came in the early 2010s was you know sufficiently advanced open source compilers were were there. So the LLVM project was you know the biggest advancement to actually allow uh, architecture independence and Apple's investment of actually making that open is like one of the the best saving graces for the entire industry of the past decade. Right. Like, I don't think we can thank Apple enough and Chris Latner and, and everyone involved in that project for 
not only doing a good job and, and making it possible for Apple to do the uh, the portability that they wanted for for Mac going from uh, PowerPC to x86, and then they wanted to you know also enable those developers to develop on an x86 Mac, but for a a uh, ARM you know iPhone, and then eventually them now moving fully to uh, Apple Silicon based on ARM, like. They could have kept all of that closed and to themselves, but they realized that that was also a really big problem for for Google and Microsoft, and and actually making that a whole uh, uh, community uh, was one of the greatest development like developments of like the past 10, 15 years in my opinion. Um, but uh, uh, you know, directly enabled us with Rex to be able to start off with a really advanced, um, you know. SSA form of the the, the um, static uh, um, intermediary representation of LLVMIR, and then um, uh, be able to do our specific optimizations and that control graph work to be able to emit you know efficient performance assembly for for the architecture. Um, and even though that comp compilation time took longer than if we just went with a risk and had all of that complexity in the hardware, like compared to, you know, the early late eighties or early nineties or, you know, 2000 with, with, uh, itanium, uh, just base computers, just the desktop computers that we're doing, comp uh, compilation jobs on were so much faster. So, you know, mm -hmm. I think VLIW to, to actually have VLIW be broadly, uh, successful and and usable for um, uh, uh, larger applications than than what they in this embedded spaces where they were um, successful really needed you to be willing to spend uh, a lot more horsepower on on that compilation stage and just the natural ev evolution of computing performance enabled that to actually be be practical. Absolutely, you you talked about last time. Uh when we, we chatted a few months ago about the kind of like software side of things sometimes being the hardest part of developing new hardware. Um, so you, you mentioned there, you know, that y'all leverage LVM, which was obviously um, hugely advantageous. Uh, what other kind of, um, uh, obviously there's supporting of operating systems and things like that, but what were kind of like top of mind for y'all um, when, when tackling things other than the compiler that you thought were necessary uh, to enable the, the Neo architecture to, to get adoption? Yeah, so our, our real focus on the compiler side was getting, you know, base LLVM and Clang uh, working. So Clang is the C and C++ front end for, for LLVM. At a high level, LLVM is kind of broken into three pieces. There's LLVM front ends for basically any high level language you can think of. Those front ends then actually output this LLVM IR, the intermediary representation, which is a static single assignment, um, uh, you know, representation of the program. But basically there's no mapping to actual registers or anything that is like hardware specific at all. But you have a control flow graph and you, you can like get a lot of intelligible and do a lot of optimizations like just on that SSA form. And then finally, there's the back end that takes in that, uh, uh, LVMIR and actually, you know, generates assembly and machine code for for the the target architecture. Um, so, LVM being you know standing on the shoulders of giants uh, there um, for those you know the front end and a lot of the the um, IR optimizations. But you know we had to build a custom back end 
Um, thankfully, like there already was a, a pretty good um, uh, VLIW uh, backend that that Qualcomm uh, released for mm -hmm. their Hexagon DSP. Um, and if I remember correctly, it wasn't actually mainline LLVM yet at that time. They they had their own branch. Then I would say we more learned from that in developing our our own backend than like. Uh, there are plenty of differences with with Hexagon, but um, yeah, that that was um, the biggest biggest lift, you know. But even once you have a compiler, even if you've got a C front end, that's kind of useless if you don't have like a libc that is right. you know actually targeted for your architecture. So um, you know, my co-founder Paul Sebexen, um, uh was really the software brains behind behind Rex and doing all, all that work basically single-handedly. So um, I, I think it also, I, I didn't really talk about the founding of Rex or anything, but, you know, I, I am very, very proud of what we did with, you know, basically four, uh, 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 you know, employees um, and going from, you know, raising our, our seed round in, in 2015 to taping out in uh, less than a year from raising money basically six months from actually getting started on real RTL that ended up in the final thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so having all of that and even just getting to that early level of, you know, a C compiler that can actually take, you know, basic C um, was, a, was a really great starting point. But where I think a lot of the soft, like our, our plans were not in that reasonable time to, um, you know, have an operating system running on there, but right. you know, actually having a good CUDA or sorry, not CUDA. Ah, thinking of modern things now. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, having a good Blas library, so the basic mm -hmm. linear algebra uh, subroutines, um, be able to have those uh, uh, optimized for our design. Like the the first benchmarks, like what we showed at that Stanford talk, was the the um, our gem uh, you know kernel um, and an FFT. Um, so um, getting those to, to actually compile and run through was an uh, accomplishment, but uh, obviously the, the industry as a whole has much higher demands of you know, supporting much larger packages and libraries than what we uh, could, could tackle with, with our team size. With the, um, the kind of like accelerated timeline you had because of funding, but then also um, you know, the time it takes to uh, get a chip taped out and get it fabricated and that sort of thing. You obviously had to be working uh, on software in parallel um, yep. with the hardware. Um, you talked a little bit about this in that Stanford talk as well. Um, but what what kind of strategies did y'all use? Did y'all have simulators that y'all built for the architecture? Um, what was kind of your, your process there as a team? Yeah, in large part because we didn't have much time just from a like base burn rate situation. And mm -hmm because we didn't, we, we only raised $2 million, um, which sounded like a lot when I was 18 and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't last long. Um, and, and, you know, we couldn't afford any fancy simulation or emulation tools. And so our, our software development and all of the, the verification that we did on the design and basically the, we, we started, you know, RTL and, and hired our, our head of engineering in November of 2015. Between then and when we taped out in June of 2016, um, was all done with uh, Verilator, which is an open source um, uh, uh, 
project. Uh, I should I should clarify that there was, um, you know, waveform simulation done just like for for individual blocks that was done just with uh, incisive the the um, uh, cadence uh, simulation tool, um, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, all anything that was like a a full core and and greater um, was was done using Verilator, which um, a lot of people told us was very crazy. Um, uh, you know, using an open source tool to be the thing that we're trusting to actually tape out a, a, a test chip on. And, um, but, uh, you know, we, we did have to make a lot of modifications to, to increase performance with, with Verilator to get to the level we wanted. You know, we started off with very uh, crazy ambition of being able to do a full um, uh, core level uh, synthesis. So going from RTL to having a, a netlist um, and, uh, uh, you know, every, every single day. And we did get there basically by, by January of, of 2016. So like we were doing very rapid iterations on our cores and, you know, at least weekly having full, full top level synthesized and having, you know, our, our golden model was that RTL that was being synthesized and taking that exact RTL, running it through Verilator to generate that C++, um, uh, you know, simulator of of that RTL, and being able to actually then use Verilator to generate waveforms to compare with you know waveforms of individual blocks, and so that whole development flow was um, completely foreign to every single person we we talked to in the industry. But if we didn't do that, there was no way we were going to be able to um, you know build a chip on on that schedule and. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's funny, and now having, you know, spent the past uh, six-ish months, you know, working on on some new hardware, um, haven't been able to replicate that level of. What what we're doing now is a bit more complex and and everything, but uh, right, you know, it's crazy to think back that um, we got that done purely out of like necessity, um, and it it worked <laughs> uh, right. without major problems. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've used, um, uh, Verilator before myself and, uh, it's, it's excellent. Um, and another thing that's, I think, you know, in the last maybe decade, so we since, had a lot of problems um, back in 2015 that have been fixed. Yes. <laughs> I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so. One of the things that, so I've, I've mostly, um, worked on FPGAs and, um, you know, after that, uh, it's, you know, similar, similar process of, of going through synthesis and, and netless generation and that sort of thing. Um, but then you, you know, eventually generate your bit stream to, to load onto the FPGA. And one of the things that's been really nice, um, you know, being an individual who's doing much less than y'all were as a four person team, but, uh, is the, um, uh, open source tooling around synthesis and that sort of thing, which has really in the last, you know, decade, maybe even five years, you'd, you could say, um, you know, grown up quite a lot, but, um, everyone I talk to who works hands-on in the industry, uh, still indicates that there's like a, a pretty significant gap, uh, between what's available open source and, and the proprietary tools. Yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I have played around with the open source synthesis tools and it's, it's, um, <laughs> I guess I feel like I'm spoiled brat in saying that, yeah, I just can't. <laughs> But uh, Verilator still, I think, is is for doing the specific things it does really well, which is enabling you to have very, very fast simulation. Like we were doing full chip 
um, uh, simulation based on taking from RTL at like one and a quarter megahertz. Um, uh, and then this, this was simulating the full 16 core chip on, you know, 2015 era, you know, low, low cost Xeons. So right. like, uh, you know, our incisive simulations were running in, in the hundreds of kilohertz. So, or no, wait, whoa, sorry, way less than that. Um, yeah, I think 10, it was somewhere on the order of 10 to 50 kilohertz. Um, wow. so, uh, being able to, to actually do, and I think that was like single core, like we couldn't even, I don't think we actually did anything larger than a single core with incisive. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, very later enabled us to do, you know, constrained random test generation and, and actually doing, you know, nightly regressions and everything that, um, sure we could have bought a very expensive tool from, from cadence or, or someone else for, to do that. But, uh, I, I'm pretty sure we actually ended up with something that worked better for us just, you know, with that, that free, you know, open source, uh, tooling. Um, so, um, and then like when it comes to Yosis and, and everything today, um, yeah, I, I, I think in large part because I, I there's not really a practical way to, uh, use all open source tooling to get to building a uh, anywhere close to leading edge chip. Like I know there's the the open, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, the, the Google sponsored project for, for doing uh, shell runs with- Right, uh, open MPW. With, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I think that's great for, for students and I'm, I'm glad that something like that exists, but I guess I've gotten spoiled there where, you know, I'm, I'm never going to make a chip, you know, I, I already made a chip at 28 nanometer. I, I need to be going smaller and smaller. Right. Out, so, um, right. so, but yeah, that's, um, oh, and, and finally, just on the FPGA note, um, we, we actually didn't start doing FPGA simulation, you know, test of our, our chip until after we taped out. So oh, really? we were so focused on getting the, the chip working. We actually did buy a pretty high-end um, uh, ultra scale, Xilinx ultra scale FPGA to, to do um, simulation with. And we tried doing some things before tape out and it was taking too much time and we weren't making progress with it. So we just said, hold off on it. And we didn't actually start actually using the FPGA for doing some um, physical like testing of connecting to the development boards that we were designing before we, we got the chips back. We wanted to test some of like, okay, can we have this on the FPGA and actually connect, you know, the microcontroller development developer board that was going to be put onto our chip. Can we take that evaluation kit we got from ST micro and, and you know, connect that to the FPGA and actually have that communication work. And right. then we found bugs um, in in our design post tape out on that FPGA, which, you know, was sad, but, uh, you know, we, we, because we had that time of knowing those bugs existed, we, we figured out ways to, to get around them by, by the time the rail chips came back. Right. And, and uh, obviously, you know, um, the, the company kind of wound down a little bit um, after y'all got the chips fabricated. Um, I do have to ask, where are the chips today? Do you still have them on hand? Have, have any been, you know, what, what are the interesting use cases that they've been used for so far? 
they make nice display pieces. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're not very good heat generators. That's that's you know, you know some of you know cold right. cold nights. I'm like, I have 181 of these chips. You know, in in my closet. Um, you know, it would be nice if uh, we we made it too power efficient. So it's just can't yeah. use this space here. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the, the long story uh, short on on that is the, uh, you know. 2017, you know, I think we we officially ran out of money two or three months after uh, that Stanford talk. So mm -hmm. May, April, May of, of uh, 2017. Um, a lot of reasons for that, which we could go into, but uh, um, but yeah, the the I think key thing from like what can the chips do? We had you know amazing uh, floating point uh, performance and efficiency for you know what we had built this low dinky 16 core test chip, um, you know, that like measured, uh, you know, validated, you know, double precision uh, floating point performance per watt on, on 28 nanometer was better. It's basically equivalent to NVIDIA A100 on um, what, seven on, on TSMC seven. So like we were able to demonstrate that worked. Uh, I would also say, even though the software was really early, it had the components there to show that you know, with more people, more time, the the software stack can function. Um, the core problem with the the test chip was, we, in the early fundraising we did, and kind of our belief, primarily as technologists when starting the company, um, was that we needed to build a chip. That was what we had to do to show potential customers, investors, etc., that you know we're serious and you know a large right. part of that is also we were both really young you know 18 my, my co-founder was 20 um and so um we kind of had blinders on of we just need to get this chip and once we have the chip that will be what unlocks us to get to the next step and and well i should say chip plus the the basic software tools around there and then you know all of these investors that to our faces had told us that you know, they didn't believe we could actually make a chip uh, when they decided not to invest in us. Then they would come around once we demonstrated we could do that. And it wasn't until, you know, after we had the chip and we were very proud in demonstrating that, that uh, uh, it became very clear that, oh, this thing we built greatly de demonstrates the technical potential, but it doesn't mm -hmm. actually demonstrate, like, th that it, it was a little, you know, 12 square millimeter test chip and it was never right. designed to actually do the thing that the 100 square millimeter version would, would you know actually be useful for so right um that focus on just getting to have silicon and, and proving that would have probably actually worked out fine if we had raised three million or five million if we had mm. some more buffer from when we had because you know we were running on fumes by February of, of 2017, when when giving that that talk, um, uh, basically by the time when we started talking to to investors and customers, and you know they realized our, our cash situation, everything turned into acquisition conversations. Um, right. So it still worked out in some ways, but uh, um, I, the, the other you know big big problem, uh, you know. <laughs> We, we gave up a, a very, very large amount of the, the company in, in our seat round. So um, that for that $2 million initial investment, 
um, uh, you know, it was on a three million pre-money valuation. So uh, we we gave up forty percent of the company at the very beginning, and right. we we actually did have you know a, a two different investment offers that would have recapped the company, but. Um, uh, Turns out investors that have the ability to block, you know, new investment coming in and such don't like having themselves diluted a small, uh, you know, a large right. amount. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think we kind of almost like seal signed our, our death certificate from the very beginning where we didn't raise enough to ensure that we could get the chip and still have enough viability that we could have you know, more extended conversations and, and make that, that real proof point with the technology demonstrator that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, we just gave up way too much of the company to actually make an appealing investment to, to anyone else. And like when it came to the acquisition co- talks, when folks looked at the cap table and, and saw that we owned such a small part of our, our company, it's like, why would they want to pay, you know, the investors and have them get all of the benefits when after that deal is over, like the primary reason that they buy, uh, you know, they do an aqua right. hire is to, to, you know, get the, the, the people and, you know, some value technology, they frankly don't care and would like the, the investors to get as little as possible. So, right. um, that was a very, uh, tricky situation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so you you went and did a uh, a few different things um, after that. Um, we're gonna fast forward through those. Maybe, maybe in a future episode, we'll have you back to talk about some of those. But you recently um, started a, a new company and uh, just kind of came out of stealth, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what y'all are doing at Positron and and maybe also um, some of your recent announcements? Yeah. Um, so. Back uh, April of, of 2023, started a new company, Positron AI, um, developing new hardware for accelerating um, uh, you know, machine learning models uh, at, in the general sense, but like 95% of our focus is on transformers and specifically like the uh, large language model and large multimodal uh, network types. Um, and so, uh, we, we haven't announced too much. Uh, we, we did exhibit at the NeurIPS um, conference uh, last month um, and sort of had a soft launch, but uh, we're going to be making some more uh, like real product and, and shipping product announcements um, uh, this spring. But uh, at a high level, we're, we're, uh, what we did show at, at uh, you know working demo of our uh, PCIe card-based uh, accelerators um, uh, having about a 5x performance per dollar advantage over NVIDIA H100 um, for Llama uh, 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 inference. So, mm-hmm. um, and some of the upcoming announcements are going to be significantly uh, greater than that um, for some of the newer, exciting uh, model types that that are are out there. So, um, yeah, our our core core belief is that. Uh, you know what are considered large language models today are going to be uh you know puny in in the not right. so distant future and we're making a very strong bet on having uh you know very large amounts of uh, memory capacity and having the right balance of memory bandwidth to compute and like the the core thesis of you know why we started Positron was uh that the sort of first generation of ai accelerator chips that you know 
all, all the companies that were founded basically 20, you know, 16, 17 till, uh, you know, 2020 at least, and even number after that, um, really base their designs on the ratio of compute to memory that existed for convolutional neural networks and mm -hmm. other neural network architectures where you could throw as many flops as, as you want and it, you know, improves your, your actual realized performance. And fundamentally, what's different with transformer models, especially on the inference side, um, if you want to have good, you know, throughput and, and latency for, for that model, um, it's a vastly different ratio required for memory bandwidth and memory capacity. And so, you know, we're targeting like with this first generation product, having, you know, an order of magnitude greater uh, uh, memory capacity than what is possible on uh, NVIDIA GPUs, um, be it today or in, in their uh, upcoming product releases, um, and having a much higher ratio of, of memory bandwidth to the actual flops mm -hmm. is the uh what is the compute or the sorry the software integration look like um for a processor that's you know specifically focused on accelerating inference obviously um you know nvidia has uh, cuda there's a couple other um i think uh, it's amd that has rock um there's a couple different uh, models there Do, does you all's architecture fit into uh, some of those software stacks or are y'all developing your own so the, the big thing and what got a lot of uh, interest and people looking at us very differently from, I would say, all of the other people trying to compete with NVIDIA um, right. uh, mm. is the fact that our software strategy is actually we don't have a compiler or there's no compiler that any user of our stuff would ever know about or, or care. Um, and so really how, how this first generation product is the the... Uh, operating model for users is we have a uh, uh, we we ingest directly the trained model file for uh, these transformer models. So you know .dot pt is the the PyTorch output file that when you do training, you know primarily on on NVIDIA GPUs, that's the output. Um, you know you can there's safe tensors and a couple other formats, but taking that trained model file, that is directly what we ingest in and put on the device. And so um, uh, there is no porting. There's no, you know, there, you know, the the story that AMD and Intel and many others have tried to tell, and to varying levels of success of actually being able to do anything close to it in reality, is that them right. saying, "Oh, well, we support PyTorch, or we support TensorFlow, or we have a process where you can go through 16 steps to convert your PyTorch model to Onyx." And oh, well, actually, we don't have that offset support. And Onyx is always six to 12 months out of date on new features, you know, being supported, or you know, they just decide that they're never going to support that that particular op. Um, rather than dealing with all of that, that has been the bane of the existence of anyone trying to move off of NVIDIA, uh, we're actually being able to take directly your config.json for your Hugging Face Transformers uh, uh, compatible model and take that, that uh, model file and directly load that onto the device so that there's zero, compat you know, our, our compatibility process is, well, if you trained it on, on you know, presumably in NVIDIA, really, if you trained it on anything, um, right. and that it's a model architecture supported by Hugging Face Transformers, we're able to to ingest the that that directly. 
Wow, that's that's uh, definitely a huge uh, benefit there. Was the um, I, I could also imagine um, not only is that really nice from an integration perspective, but if you are you know a startup, a smaller company, uh, removing the need to build all of that software support uh, is also also nice from an organizational perspective. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's drastically simpler for for the customer users, which is the number one thing, but anything that can also make our lives easier. And, you know, we're very clear in our stated mission and and goals that um, if you're using, you know, uh, you know, some 3D UNet piece, yeah, technically our hardware can support it. Yeah, technically we could. And actually in one case, like we've gotten a very simple version of that running and going through this, but at least in the foreseeable future, we're not going to be offering that to customers as as an option. We we want this to be the simplest process for us to be able to, uh, you know, get a, a product out to market and people actually having a, a viable alternative to uh, to Nvidia. And um, you know, I'm uh, you know knocking on wood a little bit. We're approaching you know one year from from the company being founded but uh you know it was our goal uh from the beginning that we would you know actually have real product in in customers hands uh you know a year from from delivery and it's looking like we're going to hit that so uh um yeah it's it's uh another you know key lesson from rex and and other experiences that i've had since then is um identifying what is it that the the customers actually craving for what is what is their the the real pain point and and desire that they're making you know their their decision on and, mm-hmm. and just narrowly focusing on that and and keeping you know your your hand on the the pulse of uh uh you know the customer throughout the entire development process you know the be it uh you know myself with rex and, and i think the the failure point for a lot of companies be it new processors or Otherwise, I think probably one of the, the main reasons companies fail is that they're too focused internally building and, and um, uh, building something that they themselves want rather mm-hmm. than really deeply understanding and being obsessed with making something that, that the customer wants. And if even like th- there is a line and you, you have to use a lot of judgment and, and <laughs> it's a process to it, but um, you know, the customer is not always right, but they're usually more right than you are in right. making decisions of how, what is going to cause them to part with their, you know, hard earned dollars for, for your thing. So, um, you obviously don't want to just build a faster horse when you could have made a car, but, um, uh, you know, there's a balance, which I'm still trying to find. And I think all entrepreneurs need to, to work on that, but it's definitely a, a really, hard problem to and an exciting one it's it's the fundamentals of how do you actually build a, a successful business right on that kind of uh set of customers that are you know interested in um a processor that's going to accelerate inference uh what what are kind of those those key pain points or the, the key things you think people are willing to switch for i mean some that come to mind based on you know what you've described your product is the interface feels like it's really important right um, and y'all having a really simple uh, maybe even you might say high level interface um to to your architecture um could go a long way i know availability is also just a, a big thing today um in in terms of other uh, aspects of y'all's product uh what are things that you've 
you know, heard from customers and then uh, tried to incorporate in as key tenants? Yeah. Um, I think the, the uh, fundamentally, I think the vast majority of purchasing decisions, if, if you assume that it's functional for the application that they care about and that they can use it in whatever mode method that they, that they desire, the next step of, of that purchasing decision where, where, where things boil down to is the performance per dollar. So it's, mm. can, can I um, actually, is, is this going to be a net savings? Um, and when going in against an incumbent, you need to have, it can't be something that's 10%, 20% better. It needs to be, you know, ideally everyone says an order of magnitude. So right. um, somewhere on, on bet- between those two ex- you know, extremes is, is, is a great point. Um, and the nice thing about this particular market and how we're trying to address this is, you know, what we're selling is actually not the chips. We're, we're selling an appliance of a full system. Mm-hmm. And we're really treating that as being like a black box for LLM inference. So, you know, you can use either publicly available model. Um, you know, we're we're aiming to work with partners that have their own closed source proprietary models that would be able to be run on our hardware and accessible to others. Or you could bring your own model. Um, but from that point on, it's no different than you know the interaction method with any NVIDIA system. You know, where we have an open AI compatible API. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, front end, we've built a load balancing system that can actually is, is hardware agnostic. So, you know, requests can hit that load balancer and be distributed to a Positron box, to an NVIDIA box, to an AMD box, as long as that um, API interface is the same as what those customers are used to. And most of the industry has kind of gravitated to the um, non-officially defined spec by OpenAI, but the one that they, you know, created for their own services. And um, uh, if you support that, there's really no no change from from that that user's perspective. They're simply sending tokens in as as a prompt and they're getting tokens back as a response. Um, And so that's uh, token in, token out model is is Mm -hmm. really one of the biggest enablers to making this easy from a actual usage and adoption standpoint once you get beyond that point of okay is the model that i want to actually run capable of being being run on the, on on this hardware absolutely absolutely is the um you know obviously things are moving at a, a pretty rapid pace uh, uh in this uh, area of the the software and hardware industry um are there any kind of like uh, concerns or future proofing um, y'all do around building this hardware that, that adheres to that interface, um, you know, to uh, ensure that your your product will be viable for an extended period of time. Yeah, um, a key thing, um, you know, where where uh, even though we call you know what we've built you know principally a, a transformer accelerator, um, mm-hmm. fundamentally it's the linear algebra accelerator that has a very clever. Um, method and and connections both for you know the memory system and for uh scalable networking um of of many of these these things put together um uh so you know from from the perspective of you know new model advancements just in the past few months there's been you know actual uh first uh, i would say real viable competitors to transformers uh in the case of of um uh, state-based models. So the the there's um, hyena and there's mamba being two things that caught a lot of attention last last month at NURPS. Um, 
And while it's still, I think, too early to tell if they are going to actually scale out to, to you know, wider usage in, in their current states, um, you know, the fact that we've, we're fundamentally a, you know, a linear algebra accelerator, like the hardware maps just as well to those different ways of solving similar problems than, you know, how transformer, you know, multi-headed attention and, and you know, uh, uh, transformers uh, do it. So um, I, I, we feel really good about having that uh, flexibility of, of changing as, as model architectures, yeah. Um, and I think the biggest advantage we have to in like the thing that I, I don't think that the other hardware providers are really equipped for right now is being able to scale to larger model sizes, uh, especially with things like I'm not saying dense models as a necessity, like the whole emergence of mixture of experts with, you know, GPT-4, BARD, and, and now um, uh, the Gemini version of BARD. Um, and, and now like Mixtrol being in the open source space, um, uh, having this method of, you know, having many experts with only a small number of them being used at, for every given token actually increases the total amount of memory you need to hold the entire model. Um, right. And so that's like perfect for this architecture we've designed where, you know, we can support having, you know, current things are capping out at like eight experts. I'd be happy if you know things move to 32, 64, or more experts because we actually have the memory that can can hold that, and we can do that affordably. I think that even like the next generations, and and all of the, you know, trend, new tr AI accelerators and things that are heavily embracing HBM as as a memory mm -hmm. technology, are sort of going in the wrong direction. Yeah, HBM is great from a bandwidth perspective. You know, it's in the name, but you're going to be paying you know at least four times more per gigabyte. And you have hard caps on how much memory can can actually be supported per HBM stack and how many stacks you can actually put into onto a co-wasp package. And so, um, you know, we're embracing uh, commodity, you know, memory is for, for our scaling story, which is what's really giving us that uh, massive amount of capacity um, and, you know, having the right balance uh, of bandwidth to compute. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Well, Thomas, I know uh, we're, we're getting close to the uh, end of the time we allocated here, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but uh, I do hope to have you on again in the future uh, as you all roll out some new products. Um, what are some ways that uh, myself and others can keep up with you and, and Positron as you all continue to roll stuff out? Yeah. Um, so I, I would say the, the best ways right now are, are on Twitter X. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's my personal uh, TR Summers um, uh, account and, and Positron, I think it's underscore AI, uh, but you, you can find that from, from my Twitter, my X account at least. Um, and then our, our website's uh, positron.ai. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link those in the show notes as well. Um, but it sounds like there's a, a lot of uh, really exciting stuff coming up. So uh, definitely we'll keep an eye on that. And um, yeah, thank you again uh, for joining for, for one of the early episodes uh, of this show. Uh, I, I'm very appreciative of the folks who are, are willing to jump on for an interview uh, before they've heard any of the other ones. Um, but um, I'm sure folks will get a lot out of this one. So really appreciate you stopping by. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. Absolutely.